right here started out in Portland. And I'm talking about no other than the man, my stepson, the professor. This is the professor. Grayson Boucher, better known as The Professor, and I'm hanging out here on the bridge. Shut up and sit down. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Hello everyone, you're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be one of the most well-known street ballers in the world? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 93 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 24 hours after the initial broadcast. Which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Thursday nights on iTunes, under the Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. There's nothing quite like a good beef between athletes, mostly because they're usually good enough at their craft to warrant one. Some can be petty, some can be humorous, and some can even turn a little bit violent. Such was the case this past Sunday, when Akib Tlaib and Michael Crabtree found themselves in a scuffle that saw both players get ejected early in the first quarter, all over a necklace. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. The rivalry between the Oakland Raiders and Denver Broncos goes back several decades as foes in the AFC West, though it's been some time since both teams have been above average at the same time. Regardless, a battle is always in store when the two teams square off. Though the Broncos are a shell of their Super Bowl-winning selves from two seasons ago, and the Raiders have underperformed as well, It didn't take long for there to be some early fireworks this past Sunday. During an Oakland running play, wide receiver Michael Crabtree locked up with cornerback Akeem Tlaib for a block, which ended up escalating quite quickly. During the grapple, Tlaib reached up and snatched off Crabtree's gold chain. 
the second time he's done so in the last year. Tlaib did the same in week 17 of the 2016 season. Breaking Crabtree's chain since it had pissed him off all season long. Then running away and giggling like a schoolgirl. We haven't seen a chain snatching quite like that since burglars ripped off Mrs. Wayne's pearls before murdering her and her husband in front of Bruce Wayne. Crabtree was injured for the first matchup of both teams in 2017, but Tlaib got it again the second go-round while both players fell to the ground during the block. Both players then got in some punches and were ejected, with Marshawn Lynch serving as mediator to accompany Tlaib while he walked off the field. After the game, ESPN's Adam Schefter reported that Crabtree went as far to tape the chain to himself before the game, knowing Tlaib would be defending him, though Crabtree denies that report. Both were suspended two games and appealed that down to one. However, the real damage was done to that of Michael Crabtree. While Tlaib can now serve as a producer for the next Two Chains album, perhaps Crabtree would be wise to learn from the second snatching and next time listen to the wise words of Stephanie Lynn Nix. John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to tape down our chains. When we come back, we'll talk to one of the most well-known street ballers in the world. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to The Bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, what is your biggest storyline happening in the National Football League and why? Thanksgiving has come and gone, but some of you might still have some leftovers from the glorious holiday. While the food spread on Thanksgiving itself is certainly king, the leftovers from the feast aren't too far behind on the decadent scale, if you're able to stomach the same foods for consecutive days in a row, that is. We're talking traditional Thanksgiving foods, not some Chinese takeout, a box of wine, and your 23 cats alone. Staples to the holiday, now parlayed into sports. In another edition of our special post-holiday segment, we'll compare Thanksgiving leftovers to some players and coaches who can be viewed as leftovers in their own right, which you'll pick up on as we go through. Without further ado, the glorious return of 2017's Thanksgiving Leftovers. First up, Turkey, Larry Fitzgerald, wide receiver for the Arizona Cardinals still. A staple of Thanksgiving, while turkey is there year-round, it shines under the bright lights, much like Larry Fitzgerald, who still grinds during the regular season and reminds us all why he's one of the greats when he's on a primetime game, even if his quarterback is garbage. Next up, mashed potatoes. Philip Rivers, quarterback of your Los Angeles Chargers. A staple on the table, mashed potatoes are always solid and a food that can be beloved by all seven of your kids. But there's nothing worse than getting to the end of the cooking process, digging in, only to realize there's not enough salt for taste or milk for texture. 
We came all that way only to lose it at the end by a poorly peeled potato or a mistake from someone else involved in the process. There's nothing like the feeling of disappointment that comes if mashed potatoes let you down at the end. Next up, stuffing. Carmelo Anthony, Oklahoma City Thunder. Stuffing is a fantastic side dish, one that obviously isn't good enough to stand on its own. But when it shows up to the dinner table once or twice a year, you remember its greatness. But no, it couldn't carry your other foods to greatness. Next, cranberry sauce. Cam Newton, Carolina Panthers. Some love it, some hate it, some liked it homemade and cooked correctly, some like it right out of the can. While it might not mix well with other dishes, cranberry sauce goes about its business, even if it might raise some eyebrows throughout the day. Next up, gravy. Carlos Beltran, World Series champion with the Houston Astros and now retired. Gravy goes great with just about everything. Send it to another side dish, only add a little as you get to the lesser foods. However you use it, it almost always comes up clutch without taking too much of the spotlight while doing so. Next, corn. Drew Brees, quarterback of the New Orleans Saints. Though used off the cob and in a lesser role than it might be used to in previous years at Thanksgiving, corn comes through in almost any situation and can really make some noise with a good cast of food surrounding it. Up next, we have carrots. Vince Carter, Memphis Grizzlies. Carrots are the old vet of side dishes and still carry the old wives' tale that eating them will help your eyes. We've seen carrots cooked in different ways and in different dishes, but while the prime days might be gone, they can still provide a spark and immediately take you back to the glory days of their career. Up next, Brussels Sprouts. Kurt Cousins, quarterback of the Washington Redskins. Do Brussels sprouts deserve a spot with the other star side dishes? Brussels sprouts certainly come through here and there, but it might not be wise to completely trust them. Though they are the king of the food you have to ask before serving anyone, do you like these? You like that? You like that? Next up, green beans. Marshawn Lynch, Oakland Raiders. Viewed by some as a beast of side dishes, especially in casserole mode, green beans can give you a highlight reel worthy plate and will serve as peacekeeper of the other foods if you need some separation by just placing them down kind of like tree trunks in a dam to separate your foods. You might not completely understand green beans in a casserole, but strip down you appreciate their honesty. I'm thankful. Next up, sweet potato casserole, Adrian Peterson, Arizona Cardinals. Sweet potatoes are one of the best side dishes in the game, but in their later years, Aunt Alice has been adding marshmallows and other odds and ends to make a casserole, and she's been bringing it to birthday parties, cookouts, and now once it's finally found a home at Thanksgiving, it only shows some flashes of greatness. Sadly, I think we might have seen the best of sweet potatoes. Up next, dinner rolls. Dirk Nowitzki, Dallas Mavericks. A Hall of Fame member of the Thanksgiving dish, dinner rolls have built a career of consistently being great and never thought about leaving Thanksgiving for another holiday to do so. But left out too long, the leftover dinner roll becomes hard and not as great as it was in its prime straight out of the oven. We can warm it up in the microwave or oven for a quick save, but it's a little sad to see what it's become. Next, ham. Kevin Durant. Golden State Warriors. Sometimes viewed as the food for pours, ham is still a winner even if it needs help, like a nice bath and beer or other marinade in order to win. It's certainly great, and while it can stand out on its own, the Thanksgiving plate is not its team. Ham plays second fiddle. Up next, macaroni and cheese. John Cena, 
professional wrestler. A crowd pleaser, especially with the kids. But a food sometimes questioned for being there, or at least in a grouping of other basketball and football players. Up next, broccoli. Case Keenum, quarterback for now, Minnesota Vikings. A raw side dish that can serve well with some seasoning, though will be quickly pulled if things go wrong in the process for something else. That's our friend, broccoli. Next, we have rutabagas. Adam Thielen, wide receiver for the Minnesota Vikings. What exactly are rutabagas? Can we trust them? They taste good, but will they sustain that success? Will we even remember rutabagas next year? Only time will tell. Up next are yams. Jaleel Okafor, Philadelphia 76ers. We've got enough talent on the table with sweet potatoes and rutabagas and the like. We just don't need you here, yams. We'll keep you around, but don't expect to get any chance to prove yourself out here. Next up is spinach. Chuck Pagano, head coach, for now, of the Indianapolis Colts. Spinach is just happy to be here, really, and we appreciate all spinach has overcome over the years, but the cartoon portrays that you'll become big and strong and successful if you stick with spinach, and that's just lies. Spinach needs to go years ago. Up next are peas, Giancarlo Stanton, Miami Marlins. A superstar in the vegetable side dish game, but it comes with a price. It's hard to trust peas. They'll hurt themselves by rolling around into other food groups and maybe not reach expectations because of that. If you're an organization, you almost have to warn peas to accept doing what you ask of them or you'll punish peas by surrounding them with awful side dishes while you rebuild an entire new plate of food. Next is cornbread, Chris Paul, Houston Rockets. A great addition to your main plate. Sweet, savory, but sometimes has trouble fitting in, even with great foods around it. And it just seems like we'll never see cornbread get past the second round of the Western Conference playoffs. Up next, we have Tofurky, Jim Harbaugh, head coach, University of Michigan. Satisfying for some gets a lot of positive press, you'd almost think it was the real thing. Almost. To the desserts, pumpkin pie, Justin Verlander. You can always trust pumpkin pie to perform on the biggest stage. Take it to other holidays, it will still be at the top of its game and deserves to be rewarded. Next up is pecan pie. Kawhi Leonard, San Antonio Spurs. Some argue pecan pie is the best dessert. Others say it can't compare to the other stars because it doesn't get as much publicity and it can't be had by some that are allergic to nuts. Pecan pie just goes out there, does its job, and doesn't need your constant praise. It just knows it's great. Up next, cheesecake. Kevin Love, Cleveland Cavaliers. Solid on its own, though can sometimes be forgotten. Cheesecake is more in demand if you add the right things around it, like fruit toppings or ice cream. Then you might remember about it and see it for the solid contributor that it is. Up next, brownies. Eli Manning, former starting quarterback of your New York Giants. Brownies are definitely an above-average dessert and can become even better if it has the right help with it. But you don't long for brownies on Thanksgiving exactly. However, you didn't realize how much you would miss brownies when they're gone because your sister forgot to bring them this past year. Thanks, sis, and thanks for bringing your weird-ass boyfriend instead. You'll miss them if they're not there even though they're not the greatest dessert that there is. Next up, before dinner, cookies. Ezekiel Elliott, Dallas Cowboys. After finding the hidden cookie jar, you're flying high, stuffing chocolate chip and peanut butter cookies into your mouth. That is until your mother catches you and snatches them away. 
And it's almost like you won't enjoy the rest of Thanksgiving until you're reunited with cookies again. There's also the hors d'oeuvres. Colin Kaepernick, free agent quarterback. No one brought any appetizers this year after everyone was too full for the actual dinner last year. Which is a shame, because many would argue that appetizers or hors d'oeuvres would be better than several of the side dishes that made the cut this year. To the drinks, we've got beer and Andy Reid, head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. You'll fly high with beer in the early going. It'll get you to believe you can do things that you wouldn't be able to sustain. And eventually you'll start coming down from beer. You'll make a late mistake before the day is over. You'll forget what time it is during the day and disappointment will set in. But you'll get your hopes up and do it all over again next holiday season. Next up is wine. Tiger Woods. A fine wine can be brilliant for years and years, one that can be used in the same sentence of the other greats. But some years, you might try something different. Try to pair dinner with another wine, and it just doesn't work. Then there's the spills and the sleepiness and the drunken episodes and the hangovers, and you don't think you'll ever get back to where you were again with wine. But you almost need wine to enjoy the dinner, and you can't help but root for the next bottle to be better than when we last saw it. And then there's coffee. Russell Wilson, quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. Coffee might not look good early, but you wouldn't want anyone else there to close out the meal. And finally, some miscellaneous items. The coupons and deals for Black Friday. The National Football League. Because lately, it's not as great as it's been advertised to be. Then we have dinner conversation about politics. Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys. Nothing good will come of it as long as it's there. Nothing. And last but not least, the post-dinner nap. Aaron Rodgers, Odell Beckham Jr., J.J. Watt, Richard Sherman, Devin Cook, etc., etc. You think things are going well for you once everyone goes home. You'll do some cleaning up. You'll do a couple things around the house. But then once you close your eyes, whatever you had planned is ruined. Now to this week's guest in Grayson Boucher. You might know him as The Professor from the N1 Mixtape Tour days. He's still a streetballer extraordinaire and global entertainer and most likely a role model for current 20 or 30-somethings who watched him on TV play with the N1 Mixtape Tour. Grayson went from a small-town kid on the West Coast to a streetball superstar almost overnight taking off while the N1 Mixtape Tour was in its prime. We'll talk about how he ended up on that tour, playing during those days, the path of streetball over the NBA, what he's up to now, and much more. You can follow Grayson on Twitter. He's at Professor12. That's Professor and the number 12. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Grayson Boucher. You might know him as The Professor. He's a streetballer extraordinaire, former star of the An One Mixtape Tour, still a star in the streetballing world, an actor, global entertainer. Gray, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, man. Doing great. Good to hear. And as we mentioned before coming on here, like most 20-somethings who like basketball, I grew up watching you and the rest of the boys of the N1 Mixtape Tour tearing it up in that heyday and for people that don't know you've come from some humble beginnings not playing much in high school not playing much in junior college but all that changed in 2003 when you got a chance to play in front of the n1 mixtape tour and then move on from there can you tell a brief version of the story of how you got involved with joining the n1 mixtape tour absolutely so in high school i was actually a big fan of n1 um, before I was actually ever a part of it. So I think N1 Mixtape 1 came out sometime, like like maybe 1999. And then I remember checking out, Volume 2 was actually the first tape that I saw, the VHS tape. And I got it because I tried on something, some, some N1 product. 
at a foot action. <laughs> and then um, I remember just immediately being drawn to that style of play and wanting to expand my creativity on the court um, so that I could get a crowd response similar to that. And, and I loved it. So I remember going back and then seeing Animal Mixtape Volume 1 and then just really being a hooked-in fan where I'm just I'm waiting on the next tape. You know what I mean? Can't wait. So fast forward from, uh, you know, that was that was like freshman, sophomore year. So fast forward to, you know, 18 years old. I'd already played one year of junior college because I graduated high school at 17. And uh, knowing that they were going to do this this nationwide tour, I couldn't wait to, you know, just go up and uh, check out some of my favorite players play on the mixtape tour. And uh, cool enough, they had started an ESPN series that um, – kind of documented their tour, I think, the year prior. So I was loving it because I not only had the tapes, now we watch it on the reality TV show. And when they came to Portland, which was the closest city to, to my hometown in Oregon, it was like an hour away, you know, we drove up, we just wanted to watch a game. I was with my brother. And lo and behold, they were, they were having tryouts. And often they would do this thing where they would try out local talent, you know, the day of to see who plays against the M1 team that night which I thought was really cool. But then also on the flip side, I had no idea that they were actually doing this. They were covering it on the TV show, sort of a Survivor-themed show to find some new talent and eventually narrow it down to one person to sign with the Amway team. So I just went up there, you know, going to watch a game. Next thing I know, they had a tryout. I stepped in there, gave it all I had, got the crowd really excited. Uh, they asked me to come in and play against the Amway team that night. I got the crowd on their feet a few times during that game. And next thing I know, you know, I was on the tour, full boat, you know, like 30 games that summer. And uh, that was the beginning of a career path for me. And here we are. You end up getting the nickname, the professor from Duke Tango for, quote, mm -hmm. schooling guys on the court, as he put it. And I think anybody that watched N1 can just hear him saying all the nicknames of some of the stars that you guys played with. He was amazing at what he did and often would stop the game if need be and call everyone out to the side if something needed to be settled on a one-on-one -on -one and, and see how some dribbling skills or a dunk can settle any disagreements that might have been had. I know you end up making it through that summer. Like you mentioned, it was that survive and advance type of mindset, nailing a game-winning shot in Madison Square Garden, something that I don't think a lot of people can say that they've been able to do. And from people that don't know what it takes to get to where you ended up being not only do you have to have great handles which you were able to show but you also have to make shots and make the pass after a defender might have his ankles broken because the play if it doesn't get completed might get lost so it's not like you're just going out there dribbling there's more to a full game to be able to develop into a star especially playing with those around you how long did it take for you to develop that confidence or fearlessness to be able to play with those guys, to sort of prove yourself that you were confident enough and able enough to be able to be with that tour and impress those around you and those watching you play as well? Um, I, would, I would say it took, me, it took me about the halfway through the duration of that summer in 2003. Um, but you made a good point in saying like, Hey, you got to finish the play. It can't just be a spectacular dribbling move. There's more to it. And you know, one thing I always stress to people is that, you know, street ball and basketball, like I, to, for me, I don't really put those in separate categories. Like I would say that street ball is just basketball with more flair and like, you know, less coaching structure. You know what I mean? So <clears throat> for me making that adjustment, it was, it was more organic than people think because, I don't think what they realize if you just saw the mixtapes and you didn't actually see a game in person or weren't familiar with the guys is that those guys were great basketball players. You know what I mean? But they had tremendous flair to their game. Therefore, they were they were great, you know, at entertaining people. So for me, um, I wasn't as good a lot as a lot of the players when I first got on there because, you know, we're talking about guys who had dabbled in the NBA, played overseas, all this other stuff. I just played one year of junior college. So for me getting on there, the reason I was able to compete was because um, – you know, not only I had, not only did I had a lot of flair in my game, but also I just had to learn the fundamentals my whole life, you know. So I had great coaching ever since I was really young, all the way up until college. So I was able to at least <clears throat> fit that level of competition just at a fundamental level. 
and then you know to add to it with the uh with the showtime was was more organic but um but yeah that's that's something i always try to establish is it like hey you know at the end of the day street ball whatever you want to call it it's just it's just basketball you know right there's former players that played with you that were in the NBA or could have played in the NBA and and great mm-hmm. players in general. It wasn't just flair and the dramatic. There were close games and great shooters and everything you would find really in the NBA just with a little more fun. And if you're growing up in that time period, you can either go out and buy the newest pair of Jordans or you can get the newest pair of N1s, tailor that with a couple of the T-shirts that were very popular back in those days. The N1 brand was all over the place and really made what you guys were doing one of the most popular things, not only in America, but across the entire world. And you grew to fame with that. You've been on the cover of Slam and Sports Illustrated. You've traveled the world. What would you say the height of not only that, but what you've continued to do in your career has been so far? You know what? Uh, And one was incredible. And, you know, there were certain moments that I didn't feel like could be topped. You know, for example, you know, hitting game winner Madison Square Garden, getting to start a career in basketball at a very young age. Like you said, Sports Illustrated, different things. But um, for me, I actually, like even today, I actually have I have the best time of my life on the court. Um, I think because now I'm more in control of my destiny as opposed to like working for a company and having to, to march it at their beat. You know what I mean? So for me, <clears throat> when I hit the court, I always feel like my last game was my was my greatest and most fun. Um, if you talk about you know most influential, you know you could talk about obviously something something during the end one time I was on ESPN four to five times a week. I, I think I think you probably go there for for making the biggest waves in the culture. But as far as for me, is it you know what the high moment or greatest is? I feel like it might sound crazy, but you know. Praise God, I feel like every time I hit the court, it's the best the best time. I'm sure there's been low points that you've had to deal with throughout all this, especially when you were a little bit younger and not playing much in high school or in college or not getting maybe that recognition that other players around you might have been getting until you were able to break through, in a sense, with the N1 Tour. And I'm sure there were low moments on that as well. I mean, it's not all great when, when you're at that high of a level, when you're playing – throughout the entire summer when you're traveling all over the world. I'm sure that does take a toll throughout the entire year. And there's got to be points where you might question what you're doing. But I'm interested to know what made you continue with the streetball career and and continue to develop the career you've grown into rather than maybe taking a path to try to play in the league or try to play overseas or maybe do something else. How you've been able to stick it out up until this time? Yeah, so... Basically, I was trying to make, I was trying to make the uh, NBA up until about 2007, and I came to a crossroad because I was playing the CBA at the time, which was like the the old D League. The D League eventually put them out of business, but that was like the the league under the NBA. And once I got there, I realized that everybody was looking at me as a marketing ploy. And then once I played for them, they would respect my game. But they weren't, you know, for me to get the opportunity to play in the NBA was tough because a lot of people in the, in the league, at the, especially at that time, did, didn't look highly upon streetball. Like, they didn't consider that, like, a valid resume. You know, they would want to see you play Division One Pro somewhere and, and, and really put in work for, you know, a year or multiple years before they would actually give you a shot at the league. And so <clears throat> knowing that, you know, and knowing what I had built in streetball already, uh, I just felt like if I was going to make a roster, and mind you, at the time I was about, you know, 24, 25, I realized that, you know, if I was going to make a roster, it'd be sometime near 30 or my late 20s, and that would be just making a roster. So I just felt like taking a, taking a different path, you know, and building on a streetball legacy that's, that's different and unique and, uh, could sort of be an area where I trailblaze as opposed to as opposed to going the traditional route and not, you know, making as much noise in the culture. I just felt like it was a better route for me. And then long term, what I realized, I, I believe this is God's plan for my life because what I actually always loved was really uh, centering in on entertaining people with the game, uh, even more so than the conventional style. So, <clears throat> so there's no regrets 
in my eyes as far as like the path I, I took, which a lot of people would be surprised to know because, you know, a lot of comments even on every video I post are like, make the NBA, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, they don't, they don't understand that, um, you know, this path I took is, is the one for me. And uh, how was I able to do it? I think, I think always just being cognizant of marketing and then when the digital age you know, it really came to the forefront, just capitalizing on that and really going hard. Because you know, after after the and one went off ESPN, then for me it was an immediate convergence to YouTube, and uh, not skipping any time with that was a big help, I think, in parlaying my career. Right. If people don't know, you've got close to two million subscribers on YouTube when you first started the Spider-Man basketball series where you donned a superhero costume, went to the streets and, and just schooled people. That was about 35 million views. Vine, while it still existed, rest in peace, I'm sure it was incredibly popular as well and incredibly popular for sports in general, just six seconds of highlights. So you've been able to keep that going. And it's interesting now one of the more popular things that's not an NBA entity that debuted this year was Ice Cube's big three, three-on-three league. So I'm interested to know if you were a coach and you could take with you some of your street ballers, either past and present, who would be on your team to compete in the big three league? Oh, man. So if I got the big three squad, I've got to go with big Escalade in the middle. Um, especially it's a half-court game. Now he doesn't have to run but down the court. That would just be completely ideal for him. So big Escalade's got to be in the middle. I'm going uh, I'm going Skip to Malou starting at the one. I'm going um, Ali Mo starting at the two. Rest in peace, Ali Mo. And then I think I'm going to have to have, on the bench, I'm going to have to have AO, Bone Collector, and I think I'll put main event on there. As, a, as our Charles Barkley roughhouser. <laughs> That'd be my squad I'd rock with, all street ball squad. Amazing. And, well, we know who the MC would be as well, so we've got Oh, no question. Duke, Duke Tango has to be in the building. That's We're right. not playing if Duke doesn't come. <laughs> well, we got to get Ice Cube on the phone. He, he might have something going here that he doesn't realize. So <laughs> <laughs> I know you've gotten to play with AI and, and T-Mac and have met countless current and former players throughout this journey. I know that's involved acting as well a a brief appearance in semi-pro starring in ball don't lie we mentioned all the social media success wrapping all that up into one question i need to know did you once beat woody harrelson one-on-one 50 to (laughs) three i don't know if the score was 50 to three but we did actually play one-on-one when i did the movie semi-pro i was actually extra in that movie in the in the championship game when will ferrell and uh, woody harrelson their team wins and I was up there for like 11 days on set or something. And a lot of times when there was downtime, we would either shoot around or play some ball. So, yeah, I did play Woody Harrelson one-on-one. But, and there was a, definitely a margin of victory. But I can't say it was 53. I'm not exactly sure what the score was. But it was enough. We, we had a lot of fun. And what was really cool about him was, and Will Ferrell, that they showed a lot of love uh, to me and, and what I had going on. And it was cool to find that they were fans of, street ball and add one and uh yeah those guys were influential for me and um because I've, I've been doing acting stuff for like 10 years off and on so during that time they were very in- influential to me so cool experience the last thing for you if you were to play on a team today what team would it be and if as you mentioned you made up a team with some of your street ballers where would you guys finish in, say, the Eastern Conference if you were to take the court in your primes? Man, that's a tough one, you know. Uh, here's the thing. I've never been the guy to say, like, you know, street ballers should be in the league or, like, I should be in the league. You know, I, I feel like we had a lane on our own, and it was all about capitalizing entertainment. And I think we were the best at that, no question. Um, I don't care who we're talking. But as far as us finishing in the East, I, I couldn't even say – I couldn't even say where we would finish or how we would do. I would just say that every game would be an incredible show. And we're, we're talking about primetime TV right there. That would be that would be a fun time. Let's put it like that. Yeah, we're missing out on a great crossover opportunity to get some of the NBA stars onto your court, no pun intended, and have them do some <laughs> street ball things with you guys. I mean, we've seen some of it now in the All-Star game. They sort of lighten up a little bit in that 
atmosphere. If they were yeah. given full reign, I think you boys would have some fun. That's that's maybe something again. Got to get somebody on the phone for that. <laughs> hey, it would be a blast. There's, there's no question. So with all that you're doing, I just wanted to give you the quick chance to close out to give people the opportunity to find what you do. I know you're involved with Ball Up. You're still playing street ball. You're still involved with the game in general. You're a big influence on social media. There's iPhone apps now. There's the Ball Handling Academy. You've got your hands in a lot of different pots. So where can people find what you're doing, social media, or wherever else that might be? Oh, absolutely. That's where it's at solely right now, social media. So if you tune into YouTube, Professor Live, that's the main hub. Uh, we're daily on Instagram. Global Hooper is my Instagram handle, at Global Hooper. And then uh, on Facebook, Professor Live. So you tune into one of those three, you can keep up with me daily. Thank you, sir. And thank you for your time peeling back the curtain on some of the things that you've once done and some of the things that you're currently still up to. It's great to still see you doing your thing and, and still entertaining audiences, not only in America, all across the world, and putting a smile on your face with the game of basketball. So thanks again for taking some time to tell your story a little bit. I really enjoyed it. Maybe we can catch up again down the road and keep everybody updated on what you're up to. I'm definitely down for that, and I'm humbled by your support, man. Thanks for the time. Thanks again to Grayson Boucher for jumping on the show. We'll now jump into another edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help us get on the right side of those lines. He'll offer up some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week, where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of what the show picks. And for the upcoming weekend, with the line set as of the recording of this show, the bridge fade of the week. Give me America's darling, the Philadelphia Eagles, giving six points on the road in Seattle against the Seahawks. Now to someone who actually knows what he's doing, you can find Donnie at DonnieRightside.com and at SportsbookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP. And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado... Here's this week's edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Is anybody got a dime? Oh, yeah. I don't have a Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Oh. Hey, folks, Donnie Wrightside here with SportsBookReview.com and DonnieWrightside.com here with another episode on the bridge of The Toll Booth. We're going to try to win you some money here. Last week, hope everything was good for the Thanksgiving holiday. Gained probably 5 to 10 pounds here watching football, eating cranberry, eating stuffing, eating turkey. It was a really, really good holiday. But we're back in business, ready to go this week, folks. You know the format out there here on The Toll Booth. We like to go 1-1. One and one. That means NCAA football one game and NFL football one game also. And the goal to go 2-0 and o to put that money in your pocket. Get that extra money. Head out for the weekend. Take the girl out. Take the wife out. Hang out with the boys there. Pay the bar tab with your winnings here. Let's get it started this week. Two games once again, folks, that we're going to bring up here on the docket. We're going to start in college football 12-2. That's this Saturday, a noon kickoff here, 329-330. That is the UMass Minutemen and the Florida International Panthers. You say, why, Donnie Wrightside? Why are you going to pick this football game out? It's an interesting one here. Not much meaning for either one of those teams. Florida International already headed to a bowl game. UMass only with four wins, but treating this game as a de facto bowl game in itself, heading down to warm and sunny South Florida. If we take a look at the opening lines here, they opened up at around two, depending on where you're shopping at. Right now, those lines sitting about one to one and a half. We're actually not going to take a side in this one, folks. We're going to lean on a total in this game. Opened up at 55 and a half, currently sitting at 55 and a half. We're going to lean over the total, folks. Reason is here with UMass, they're going to open it up. They're going to play a little bit, you know, flamboyant on offense, probably fake some field goals, fake some punts, throw it deep, have a lot of fun, send those seniors out on a winning mark, or at least have some fun in this football game. If we look back the last five opponents for UMass, Georgia Southern, they hung 55 on that team. Appalachian State scored 30, went down and played a 
tough SEC opponent in Mississippi State and hung 23 on them. Maine 44 points and a slowdown game with BYU because they typically play slow versus everyone. If we look at FIU's last five games, they hung 41 on Marshall, low scoring game 14 to 7 with UTSA. Uh, Old Dominion 30 to 37. They actually took a loss in that game by seven points, but high scoring. Florida Atlantic beat them up pretty good 52 to 24. And Western Kentucky 41 to 17. Folks, I see points in this football game. UMass is going to come down there hot and ready to go, trying to end their season on a high while FIU out there might get some of the backups in on defense, have a little bit of fun before their bowl game. But I do see points in this one. Let's lean over on the 55 and a half. If we flip it over to NFL action the very next day, we're going to pick on a really good football game here, folks. That's 355-356. That's the Minnesota Vikings versus the Atlanta Falcons. If we take a look at the line currently sitting here, opening up at three, still sitting at three across the board, over under 47 and a half to 47, depending on where you're shopping at, folks. We're going to lean on the home team here. I know it's not a really popular opinion right now. If we're looking at some of these tickets factored in, only 35% of the betting public right now leaning towards the Atlanta Falcons at home. I like the Falcons in the spot. I do think Minnesota is one of the class teams of the NSC, just like Atlanta. And I do think Minnesota actually is a little bit better overall on the season, but the spot here dictates what we're going to do with the Atlanta Falcons. Coming off of three straight victories, beating Dallas 27-7, beating Seattle on the road 34-31, and beating in-conference rival, or excuse me, in-division rival, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 34-20. You're going to get Devontae Freeman back here in the backfield. He's been out primarily all three games, getting hurt on the first drive versus the Dallas Cowboys, who will be back into this game clearing concussion protocol here early in the week at the time of taping here on the toll booth. So we think that's going to give an advantage. If you look at Minnesota, it's all aces so far. Look at their five-game spread list, last five games. Baltimore, 24-16 winner. Cleveland, 33-16 winner. Washington, 38-30 winner. The Rams, 24-7 winner. And the Detroit Lions there on Thanksgiving Day, 30-23. That's a really good football team. I already think Atlanta is in playoff mode. If you look at the NFC South at this point, the Carolina Panthers, New Orleans Saints, and Atlanta Falcons all vying for that top spot. If you look at Minnesota and the NFC North, folks, it's theirs to win right now. I mean, have a huge lead in that one. I just think the Atlanta and the Falcons need this game a little bit more. So we're going to hang on that minus three and we're going to take the home team here. So if we want to review on the toll booth for this week, folks, game 329-330, we're going to lean on the UMass Minutemen going over the total of 55 and a half. And then if we take a look at NFL Sunday game 355-356, the Atlanta Falcons, folks, take them minus the three points. I think they can win this football game by a touchdown down in the dome. It's been a lot of fun all season long. Hopefully we can continue right through to the Super Bowl and pick out some winners for you folks here on the toll booth. Thanks for joining me today on the Bridge. Have fun. Good luck. Cash those tickets. Once again, it's been Donnie Wrightside from sportsbookreview.com and donnywrightside.com. Have a great week, folks. Left side. Strong side. Left side. Strong side. Left side. Strong side. Left side. Strong side. Left side. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print, and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Since Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so. And with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down Justice League, which Rotten Tomatoes describes... Fueled by his restored faith in humanity and inspired by Superman's selfless act, Bruce Wayne enlists the help of his newfound ally, Diana Prince, to face an even greater enemy. Together, Batman and Wonder Woman work quickly to find and recruit a team of metahumans to stand against this newly awakened threat. But... Despite the formation of this unprecedented League of Heroes, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Cyborg, and The Flash, it may already be too late to save the planet from an assault of catastrophic proportions. You can find Joe on Twitter at DukeMish, D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or however you'd like to call it, joe.com. 
Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. So I'm sorry about this week. I do not have a script. I wrote it up, but my iPad deleted it mysteriously, and trust me, I'm just as upset about it as you are. But we're going to roll with it. So let's talk Justice League. Justice League is the fifth film in the DC Extended Universe, which started with Man of Steel, went to Batman v Superman, moved on to Suicide Squad, and then Wonder Woman, before we hit November's Justice League. Now, just a quick breakdown as how those films go for me. I really love Man of Steel, although a lot of people don't. I think that Batman v Superman is a bad movie with good scenes in it. And Suicide Squad is a catastrophe, the worst movie I saw in 2016 by far. Now, Wonder Woman is an amazing film, but the question is, where do we go from here? Let's go to the tape. Where it starts here for Justice League is obviously the characters. How do the characters fit in together? How would they get these characters to gel in a two-hour film, three of which we have never met, except for very short cameos? Let's start with the ones that we know. Ben Affleck as Batman is fantastic. He's not my favorite Batman, but he is very good. He has the look. He has really nailed this role. Superman, I've always enjoyed. Henry Cavill, I've always enjoyed his performance. How he's handled in this movie, I won't spoil it, although it, you've probably seen this movie if you wanted to see it, but how he's handled, he, he's handled very well. I really enjoy how they utilized him in this film after his death in Batman v Superman. Wonder Woman, obviously, Gal Gadot has overshot our expectations big time, and she's absolutely nailing this role as Wonder Woman. Our new characters, we have the Flash. Now, we know what he does, but would Ezra Miller be able to give us a nice interpretation of the character? And I think he absolutely does. He provides this movie with a lot of comic relief that it probably needs. You know, looking at the DCEU, it's very somber, a lot of it. So, Ezra Miller really gives us kind of the humor that we need. He hasn't hit on all of his jokes, but he hits on a lot of them, and it's it's pretty funny and a lot of fun. Moving on to Cyborg, there, there's good and bad. I, I think I like the acting. I like the character, but I would like to know more about him. He's used more in this movie as a plot device. Cyborg could just really do anything he wanted to do as long as the plot called for it. And it didn't make any sense to me because we don't have an origin movie and I don't know anything about him. So it was tough to kind of totally get on board with his character because I, I just, I, I would like the knowledge behind him. Now Aquaman, this is the one that just didn't work for me. And it, and it didn't work for me since the first time Jason Momoa was announced in the character. And I have nothing against Jason Momoa. He is a good actor, but... This is just, it just doesn't work. He's too, he's too manly. The character is just too overly manly. It's just, it's an absolute mess. There's literally a scene where he takes a bottle of whiskey, he's shirtless, and he's slow motion walking toward this big tidal wave that's about to crash down on him. And he's slowly taking a swig of the whiskey, and it's literally, it's laughable. It's laughable. I'm obviously I'm laughing right now trying to describe it to you. It was like Warner Brothers or DCEU or Zach the director Zack Snyder was trying to overcompensate for the flamboyant nature of him in the comics. Now I didn't read the comics, but I know that he wears a lot of a lot of bright colors and and this movie just doesn't call for that. But honestly, I mean, would it have been a big deal if he wore bright colors? Even if he was gay or something? I think that would have been a nice addition to a film like this. But, nonetheless, we got Jason Momoa. Now the great thing about them, and what makes this movie a lot of fun, is that they actually do work very well together as a team. 
and it's a lot of fun when they're fighting off the bad guys. It's fun when you get these different superheroes, and they're not just off doing their own thing. They're helping each other. It makes for a lot of fun, and really what I think these team-up movies are all about. Now, they had to fight off a villain, Steppenwolf, and he was very bland. He was there. They needed him to move the plot. They needed someone to fight. They needed someone powerful to fight, and he was there. And his army of... I forget what they were called. They were like flying bees. I don't know. So it was, it was very bland, very uninteresting. I didn't like how they handled the CGI with him. It was just a little off. The sound was just a little off in his speaking and his lips moving. So that wasn't great. The plot was very superhero basic, you know, superhero-y basic plot and it was just bland. It was bland. This movie also has tonal issues, and it probably has to do with, unfortunately, the tragic death of Zack Snyder's daughter, and he had to leave the project because of it, and Joss Whedon took over it, and you can really tell. There are a lot of scenes that you could tell are Zack Snyder's, and there are a lot of scenes you could tell that Josh Whedon's because Joss Whedon hits you with some quippy, funny scenes and it, it's it's too obvious it's too obvious and that's why they're tonal issues and, and it's a mess because every movie kind of has a different a different tone they're trying to do something different which brings me to the point of what is justice league what is it what were they going for here's the problem with the entire dceu man of steel comes out it's mixed a lot of people love it a lot of people hate it. As I said, I'm on the love side. I think it's a great movie. I still think it's a great movie. Now, they took what the fans said negative about it and tried to spin it and make something positive in Batman v Superman. Didn't work. And and that continued with, with Suicide Squad. It, it didn't work. The one film that did work, Wonder Woman, is an individual voice. You know, Patty Jenkins, she had an idea and she went for it. And it was an individual movie, and it was fantastic. I feel like Wonder Woman is separate from the Justice League building movies. You know, Wonder Woman is an origin story, and it really works, and it's great. And I wish that they did that with all of these characters, directors with their own voices, and the, the studio didn't get involved in things. But here we are, and we're in the DCEU. I don't blame Zack Snyder. I really love his visual style. I, I love Watchmen. I think it's a great movie, and I think it's great because he takes a great source material and adds his visuals to it, and it's just phenomenal. The bottom line, Justice League is actually a lot of fun. It's not a good movie, but it's a lot of fun. It's a step up from Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad, but it's nothing groundbreaking. It's not going to change your mind about the DCU at all. It'll just keep you watching for Wonder Woman. The Justice League could have worked. I have to come back to this over and over again. Marvel did it right. They got their individual movies, and then they came together for the team-up. And you didn't need to learn about their characters, because you knew them. They just had to learn about each other within the framework of a film, and it worked out beautifully. Justice League could have done this. They had a great start with Superman, no matter how people feel about it. There were a lot of people that loved that film, and they just decided to jump to Batman v Superman because people didn't really like Man of Steel. They basically went about this franchise all wrong, and it's come back to bite them over and over again. I'm going to give Justice League an array of scores, because I can. Justice League is in hockey when there's a minute left and you're down seven goals and then someone hits one in, and now it's 7-1. Or when you're down 30 in a basketball game and all of a sudden you knock down a couple threes and it gets it closer but ultimately doesn't change the outcome. Let's take Jimmy Garoppolo, for example. He came in for the 49ers this week, let a touchdown drive at the buzzer. Didn't matter, because they were down by a little bit more than that. And unfortunately, that's all that Justice League is. It's a lot of fun. 
It's not good. I would count it in the win column for the DCEU, but it's not groundbreaking. It's just another film. And hopefully Warner Brothers can figure out a way to move on from it. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Thursday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to the show live on Wednesdays on TuneIn by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.